Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wigman. A few years ago, today's guest casually asked her cousin in Germany, what did you do in the war? She was not prepared for the answer. Lois Buchter was told that her cousin Gertie had been in the Hitler Youth and was 14 when World War II started. The kindest woman Lois had ever known was a Nazi? Gertie's War is Lois Buchter's first nonfiction book. It covers the years 1938 to 1947, showing what life was like in Germany during the war and afterwards, as taken from Gertie's journals from the time and the stories she told. The title of Lois Buchter's book about her cousin is Gertie's War, a journal of life inside the Wehrmacht. Lois Buchter, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Nancy. Well, in the title is the word Wehrmacht, and people might not know what that even means. What, what does that mean? That is the military communication branch uh, for the German military. So that was all the logistics of moving of people and planes and equipment. And that's in the title of the book, A Journal of Life Inside the Wehrmacht. And, you know, as I read your book, you have very convenient, it makes it easy for the reader because there are little divisions in here. And I first was thinking, well, that's because Gertie's journal, probably there was entries at different dates. But then also you're a screenwriter and you have several screenplays, teleplays and shorts in your portfolio. So I thought perhaps that's your background as a screenwriter. You kind of divide this book into scenes for us, which makes for easy reading. So thank I, you I for that. The subject matter is so hard. I tried to keep it as an easy read um, because as the book progresses, it starts out as a more naive, very holistic, um, ideal uh, life that she was having in Germany, um, ages 13 and 14, and then it takes her through to age 25 when um, it progressively gets worse as the word progresses. Yeah, in fact, as I was reading your book, I thought, gosh, I could open this book on any page, and this would be a dramatic, unforgettable scene that you have described through, the first part is through um, your cousin Gertie's words, and then the second part, she's your tell it in the third person. So we get to know this young woman, life is great, she has a brother that she adores, and everything is going great for her. And how did you even know about, because you must have known that part of her life. No, I didn't. Um, Gertie was, Gertie was my, my dad's uh, second cousin. So my third cousin, and I had never met that arm of the family, but he always talked of her very lovingly. And I missed, she had come to the United States back in the seventies and I missed that visit. But, and it, and it just killed me that I missed it because she was the last branch of the family that we had in Germany. And she was very good friends with my grandparents. Um, And, but when it was just a casual conversation, um, Nancy, in the kitchen. I had no idea. Uh, handing a, picking up a photograph of her father sitting in a wagon with German officers. I just turned to her and I said, well, what did you do in the war? Not even thinking that she was going to respond that way. It literally took me to my knees. Um, I just... She she didn't think she had done anything remarkable in her life, but the t- and the fact that she actually talked about what she did and how it was because there is a collective shame to me uh, for people of German descent that they just don't talk about the war. It's it's something you just don't ask. And she opened up to me and she started telling me little bits and it just every tale was even more amazing than the next. And, I, I guess that's it started my writing journey because I guess somebody's got to write that story. I wasn't a writer at the time. Oh, my guest is Lois Buchter, and she has written a book, Gertie's War, A Journal of Life Inside the Wehrmacht. And I understand her hesitancy. I mean, I, I, I have a sister-in-law who grew up 
in Europe during the war. And I really don't know what her experiences were because she doesn't want to talk about it. And I thought about that when I was reading your book, thinking, boy, next opportunity, I'm going to see if I can't broach that subject tactfully and see what I might learn. So this young woman, she's very talented. I mean, she's a smart woman, I mean, a little girl. She was a little girl when she started. Yeah. And so how did she get from this kind of naive, innocent childhood to the life that she led during the war? Well, she she was actually pushed into that journey by her association with the League of German Maidens. And that was a requirement uh, that an edict that was passed in, um, I think, 1934, that girls of certain age had to go to required classes. And it took what used to be her Girl Scout group um, and turned it into more of a German history um, marching throughout the square, uh, helping the community at large, which she liked that side of things, but she just didn't like the marching. And, and that twisted reality changed when she turned 14 because she went into the more advanced group and they were not, they were, their edicts were very firm and she would not be allowed to go to any further education if she didn't attend those classes. So that's a mandate that was throughout Germany. So what people don't realize is that Hitler really took control of Germany because he took control of the children. And after World War I, most people only had one child, very rare for them to have two, because they were still trying to get their feet underneath them from the reparations they had to pay out from World War I. So Hitler put people to work. And, and according to Gertie, she said, we didn't think he'd be in, in charge long. We, we thought he would be there for a little bit, and then somebody else would come up. Um, and it just didn't happen. Um, so that's... Her, her eyes were really open from living in this very small town of 250 people to going to the much larger metop metropolis of Fatsheim. And once she got there, then she saw a whole new world. And that happened at age 14. I might mention that in this kind of Girl Scout group was a dear friend of hers. You might mention her name. Oh, yes. A true, you know, a true best friend, Marta, was, was uh, the joy of her life, and they were sisters in the sense of the word. They um, did everything together, and Marta and Gertie uh, went to Fatsheim together, um, and Marta was assigned to work in a manufacturing facility, and so was Gertie, but they were in different locations, but they thought they were quite sophisticated. Um, you know, they cut their braids off. They they wore a suit with gloves to ride the train, um, but they would leave at six in the morning and not come home till 7, 30, 8 o'clock at night. And that was the standard. Uh, can you imagine sending your teenagers off six days a week doing that? Um, but that's, that's what they did. Well, somebody else who was sent off, there was a teacher that yes. was sent to a work camp and this new teacher comes in and they have to say, Heil Hitler, when the new teacher yeah. comes in. Yeah. And, and that teacher that was, she, adore, everybody adored him. He was the one, they all wanted to sit with at lunch and he made history come alive and he refused to change the textbooks to this new uh, German sanctioned um, books. And he wanted to keep things the way they were because the kids loved it. And he didn't quite tote the line and he was warned and he was just, one day he was just gone. And Gertie's mother as a midwife had uh, delivered children um, to that family. And so she visited um, to see what was going on and, and the family had left and the father had been sent to a work camp. And um, when she tried to complain or, you know, they, they just, they did not let her or, and she said, no, students themselves did not even complain. And she said that was her first lesson in fear is that people did not step up and say something because her father was very outspoken. My guest is Lois Buchter, and she has written a book, Gertie's War, a journal of life inside the Wehrmacht. And her cousin is keeping a journal. How did she come to start writing a journal? 
she was multi-talented. She spoke about five languages and uh, she uh, was always writing. She wrote poetry. Um, she, she, she showed me her books. It just, she handed them to me. She goes, do you want them? And they were in German. <laughs> well, I was thinking that when I was reading, because you include some terms in German, but it was her brother, Rolf, who gave her a journal for her birthday. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, he, he was her encourager and she encouraged him in architecture. He was going to be a great architect someday. Um, yeah. He also was very talented from what we learn in your book. Rolf was very talented and makes it all the more heartbreaking. What happened to Rolf? Rolf actually um, was on a post office um, delivery uh, on his bike in the, in the spring as the snow melts were happening and the river ends in the next town. That's the town actually his father worked in. Um, he was riding his bike and he heard some children calling for help and two elementary children two boys had fallen uh, through the ice on the river and were going down the river and Rolf was able to save one of them and was not able to save the, the second boy but um, they they were so concerned about the boy they really didn't do much for Rolf and Rolf just got back on his bike and and rode his bike home and he got a, a chill from that um, ordeal and he caught pneumonia and they didn't have a hospital in town and the visiting nuns came and tried to help him but Rolf died of um, pneumonia uh, just at 17 so very very sad uh, time. Yeah that's so sad and particularly since she so admired her brother adored her brother Rolf so that was heartbreaking for her and then let's go on to, uh, she goes to business school. And what was business school like for her? Uh, business school was a long day. So she would she would go to business school in fall time and then she would do required work in the manufacturing. And then on Saturday, she did required work at the post office and also had to do her mandatory uh, BDM, which is the League of German Maidens. Uh, she had to do those classes. So she was, she, they didn't have much time to do anything but tote the line. You know, you were told where to go, what to do, and when to be there. And that's the structure. And when the, and <laughs> when the teacher entered, you had to say Heil Hitler. You had to stand and say Heil Hitler, yes. I'll be back with author Lois Buchter after a break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman. Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. My guest today is Lois Buchter, who has written a book about her cousin during World War II. The book is Gertie's War. So she goes to business school, and this, meanwhile, things are getting pretty rough. Um, Some young stormtroopers come through and stood in the doorway of a Jewish business, and they burned it. Yes. And, and, uh, or if one of her classmates, she was Lutheran, Magdalena was, but she had a Jewish grandmother. And yes. Magdalena disappeared from school. Yeah, just told to leave. And the family had to leave. They lost everything in their home. And then um, Gertie found out that a military family moved into that home. So it was, um, sh- sh- she wanted to say, stop. Uh, no, she's not Jewish. She, you know, 
it was it was such she had never met a Jewish person before. Magdalena was really the first Jewish person, but she wasn't really Jewish. You know, it was her grandmother who was Jewish, but they they looked for that lineage, and um, she was labeled Jewish because of that association. Well, now you mentioned that your her dad was outspoken. She called him yeah. Papa. And well, how did he avoid being labeled a communist? He, um, so her father worked as a bookkeeper in the next town and he worked for the city offices and he would not attend any political meetings. Um, he really relied on Germans to do the right thing. He did not really want to um, be associated with any political party. And um, he got a lot of pressure to join the party um, and his job would be in jeopardy if he didn't join. So um, her father actually started up and led the Red Cross branch um, in their area. And that's how he was able to just sidestep the political association. Of course, he, he was the lead singer in the men's choir in town. And so he socialized with those people on a regular basis and he had to mainstay, maintain um, good standing. And so he, he led the Red Cross and they let him do that. My guest is Lois Buchter. Her book is Gertie's War, A Journal of Life Inside the Wehrmacht. And she as she starts out, she's very young and naive, but then it comes a point, like in the summer of 1940, where she says, for the first time, I believe real evil can exist. Yeah. And that's, that's sad, but that's what her experience is. Um, uh, led her to conclude. And then she said, we can't let others know that we sometimes listen to French radio stations. It's her mother. Her mother had a, a, a closet up in her bedroom um, that had a power outlet nearby. And so they would listen to the radio in, um, in the closet. And at one time they actually had um, German enlisted young men who were in training staying with them. So can you imagine living in a two-story, well, three-story house because it had a uh, had a basement, but knowing that, you know, he was upstairs and you were downstairs and you were huddled around the radio, um, not knowing if he was going to come home. And so a lot of times Gertie would stand watch and her mother, who she called Muti, would um, sit in the closet and listen to the radio. Well, one thing that I found amusing since I grew up in the South and Gone with the Wind was a story that a movie that was very popular all over. And I was amused that Gertie and Marta and some friends went to see that movie to celebrate Gertie's birthday. They saw Gone with the Wind. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. To go to the cinema, she said that was the highlight of of the year if they could go to the cinema because they didn't have that in the small town where she lived. So um, going to much larger metropolis of Fotsheim, uh, which was uh, actually a huge industrial and um, metals manufacturing um, jewel. Uh, that's what they were known for. And Fotsheim is in the north end of the Black Forest. So Gertie lived about 45 minutes from the French border uh, that was to the west. And then Gertie's reassigned to a work camp. Well, she actually worked for a, um, a young officer. She was assigned uh, to do home uh, through the BDM. She was assigned to do home health uh, service. And she worked as a nanny to, for five children. And while she was there, the officer's wife um, didn't like the attention that the officer gave Gertie. Uh, she was jealous and she reported Gertie for um, conduct unbecoming, and Gertie was sent to a farm work camp. And because all the young men were were being assigned to work on the in the field on the line, and um, it was her first time away from home. And it was uh, she went to the Hergerlin work camp, and which was about two hours away by train, and it was extremely difficult. She was assigned to a farm. And she had to get up and do calisthenics 
at six in the morning and then work all day. And she was in given- fact, she comments on why do we have to get up and exercise before we did physical labor all day long? <laughs> yeah. That didn't make sense to her. <laughs> it didn't. And but she was- also she says that laziness was not tolerated in any form and is considered the worst offense. Yes, yes. And there was one girl who who actually came back from one of the camps and took a nap and the 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 matron in charge found the woman sleeping and she turned a, a hose on her and she was hosed down in front of everybody and had um it it, it actually scarred her skin um from the pressure it was a horrible, horrible ordeal. And Gertie, at first, when she arrived in the work camp, did not think she could take a shower in front of all those girls. And after just a few weeks, she she didn't care anymore. She was just <laughs> so filthy and so tired. Um, but she really developed some wonderful friendships with the young girls that were in her small group with the sleeping quarters. Well, I found the German Ten Commandments. You say there's a large poster of the German Ten Commandments on a wall at the front of a room. Do you remember some of those commandments, um, Lois? Yeah, well, I, I remember that uh, what she was talking about is that, um, hold on, I can find it here in the book. Yeah, it's um, on page 65. Page 65. <laughs> it starts with, remember that you are a German. German. Yes, and if you are of healthy stock, you should not remain unmarried. Keep your body pure, keep your mind and spirit pure. As a German, choose only a partner of German or other Nordic strain. In the choice of your partner, consider ancestry. Health is the prerequisite of outward beauty. Marry only with love. Seek no playmate, but a marriage comrade. Desire as many children as possible. Yeah, desire as many children as possible. In fact, that's what they incur. Her mother was uh, encouraged to encourage population growth. Exactly, exactly. And they would give um, uh, an award to women who had 10 or more children. That was the highest uh, accolade a woman could have, um, specifically in the smaller towns, to have and produce a lot of children. Yeah. Well, she has been working on this farm, and she was not really a part of the military just yet, as I recall then. But then she did go into the military and what did they tell her? What did they assign her to well, do? Well, she, she actually went to Stuttgart uh, to start because she had had business school training and she could use a typewriter um, and she could take dictation and she was she wanted to be a bookkeeper. So she went, she thought, well, business school would not be bad. I'm going to need it anyway. But um, she would do anything to get out of that work camp because uh, winter was coming and um, she helped save a young girl and um, she kind of got some accolades and they said, who has this training? She raised her hand and was sent to um, training and she actually entered the military, entered the Weimark at that point. That means she's given a uniform, and she comments at least they were clean and warm. Yeah. So these training classes, uh, she goes to Stuttgart, and the training classes are afternoons and evenings, and they have other duties as well. And they can't just take a bath anytime they want to either, can they? No, no, they can't. And um, I, it, it, just to have a hot shower was, was a thing of beauty. And... Um, she would go to, um, I think it's twice a week they would get a shower if they were lucky. <laughs> so it was, it was very difficult and very um, exacting in the, um, in the attention to detail because mistakes were not tolerated at any time. Yeah, you were saying that, uh, she says, that this six-week training course was intensive. They had a lot of memorization, and they had to be absolutely accurate. And she says, I've started studying the 40 different coded sentences and abbreviations that must be memorized before graduation. And there were a lot of girls there, uh, so there was noisy typewriters going. Yes. Yes. And, and the more, the closer, the better your speed, the better your um, performance, the more you race to the front of the class. And uh, those were the people that were then sent on. And she eventually went to Boblikin, 
where um, she actually worked in the communications branch. And mostly, she's told me, she did weather forecasts. So it was weather conditions going out and weather condition updates from the field that would come back um, because they couldn't move the armies without knowing what the weather was. In fact, speaking of the weather, she was freezing a lot of the time. Oh, sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, not much heat. Um, and can you imagine trying to type with accuracy and your hands are, are like frozen and um, wearing a uniform and you have to sit at attention? And um, and she's, she said she felt like a, she said, I felt like a robot or what a robot would be <laughs> because I was just a body uh, disseminating information. And then you, she had this matron who would walk by the desk and she would listen to the footsteps of the matron because the matron carried a leather rod. And what yes. would she do with that? Um, she would, they could uh, wrap their fingers, they would hit the typewriter, they would hit the side of the chair, and you never knew when it was coming. Yeah, and, you, and she says, we're tested at the end of every day and our progress charted at the back of the room. So that's when if you were doing well, you'd move to the front of the room. Now, you also say that when she was in Stuttgart, she says an 80-plane bomber raid hit Stuttgart over the summer. Yes, yeah, and that was ama amazing. Can I read you a little bit about yes. that bomber raid? Yeah, would, would you do that? Um, yes, because it was it was just so eye-opening. Um, an 80-plane bomber raid hit Stuttgart over the summer. We are drilled on where to go during the next raid. We sit huddled together in a large underground cellar under the main classroom building. When sirens go off, we stop and run to the shelter. It doesn't matter where you are or what you are doing, even in the shower. The compliance is mandatory for all. The matron does a roll call in, in the cellar. Workers added extra concrete pillars for support. I'm having trouble working in the freezing cold classroom and sometimes my fingers won't respond. I thought with all the girls working, we might generate some heat. I move my chair closer to the girl next to me to see if it will help. But it's it just, she goes on and on about just wishing for warmth, wishing for leather gloves. <laughs> so it's it's a difficult time. My guest is Lois Buchter and she was reading the words of her cousin Gertie from a journal of life inside the Wehrmacht. And she is being trained uh, on teletype and she's talented, she's doing a good job, she's accurate. But um, it's still, it's, it's tough because meanwhile, the United States declares war on Germany, Britain declares war on Japan. And so her father's concerned about her. What does her father give Gertie? Uh, he gives her a knife um, and asks her to hold it close to her. Um, he also gives her gloves, uh, <laughs> um, anything to help her. Um, she's not able to go home very often. And at this point in the war, she's still getting updates from the family. But as the war progresses, she gets less and less uh, letters from home and doesn't really know what is happening back home. And that is first and foremost on her mind. She's very, very close to her parents. And especially after the loss of Ross, uh, of Rolf, they are they are desperate to know what she's doing and how she's doing. And her mother's very concerned because she's getting way too thin. And she can't let anybody find this little pocket knife. Uh, she writes that her papa made her promise to sew a little pocket into the lining of my suit and keep the knife with me all the time. But now if they, and then what did he tell her? Well, if they find this knife, what are you going to tell them? <laughs> and find the knife. Uh, you're going to you're going to just. Uh, um, I can't actually. I can't remember she, what I said. Well, he said. Uh, well, tell him you're working on your woodworking skills. Yes, yes, always, always, yes. Whittling, and she would use that knife actually to. Um, the soap was awful that they would give them, and so she got to where um, she would take the little slivers and she would carve little tiny creatures, um, little bugs into the soap pieces. I didn't put that into the book, but that's something that she told me that she would do. Well, now, meanwhile, these girls are handling top secret transmissions on these machines, on these teletype machines, which she says are a marvel of science. And say they look like my old typewriter that I used in business school, but there's this little ribbon coming out of the back. So they're handling top secret transmissions, these yes. girls are. And yeah. that's why they're watched so carefully. 
Yes, and they actually their group was known as the Gray Mice because <laughs> they were they were no, they were usually working all night and would sleep during the day. And so, um, and Gertie had such a fear of mice. She called them <laughs> monsters. So it was kind of ironic that her group was called the gray mice and and they had such an infestation of, of rodents in the areas we see. Even found mice in her suitcase at one time. <laughs> yes. yes, and woke up one time and one was sitting on her chest. So. <laughs> And you say it was actually French soldiers that called them gray mice. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> they did a good job. Well, one of the things that she also mentioned is the smell of war. And what was she referring to when she talked about the smell of war? Oh, the smell of, of decay, because they would have uh, flax. They would have air raids and flax. So flax... Um, bombardments were little, little tiny business cards that uh, would be dropped from bombers. And when they would land, they would ignite. And so the smell of, of burning, um, the smell of burning and the smell of, of decay, uh, it just, it, it seemed to permeate the walls. It was everywhere. She could never get that smell out of her nose. It was- it Maybe you'd like to read that section of her journal uh, where she talks about these constant raids, these nights, nights and day. Do you have that handy? Yes, I do. It says, we've had constant raids these past few nights and a few during the day. Another wave of planes has arrived for night duty. Our matron has told us that the English are bombing us during the day and Americans are bombing at night. We cannot leave the communication complex and walking around the back garden does nothing for our spirits. At dusk, we can see the red haze on the horizon to the north towards Stuttgart. We hear part of our flight line here has sustained hits. It will only be a matter of time before the planes come back and finish off the airport area. We are right in the line of fire. The air outside smells, burns my nose from burning wood and chemicals. Reports are coming in from all over Germany that the bombing raids are hitting every major industrial city we know this because in some of the transcriptions that we type, thousands and thousands of people have been killed and many more displaced by the firestorms. I have learned firsthand what explosive bombs, incendiary bombs, and air torpedo bombs are. Comments in the bunkers are passed along from the officers by the sounds going off. That was a torpedo. It sounds like a... This is author Lois Buckter reading the words of her cousin Gertie who was keeping a journal of her life inside the Wehrmacht during World War II. And we know that her best friend was named Marta. Yes. And she's lost her brother already, Rolf. What happens to Marta? Oh, Marta. Marta um, takes refuge in a um, underground um, bunker and it um, gets flooded uh, during one of the raids in Fatsheim and um, she is killed and it it actually it crushes Gertie she she can't function uh, for a while and um, the nerves on, on many of these girls are 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 just jagged she lives on the edge um, while she is there and it it is too much to comprehend she she has to um, and she's afraid of what will happen, that they'll send her back to a farm camp um, because she's not able to do her teletype duties um, for a little while. But, uh, yeah, Marta is killed during one of the bombing raids. In fact, the way she died actually is so unexpected that she drowned. Yes, she drowned. Yeah, she went down into a hotel basement during a yeah. bombing raid. And that's... I mean, and it ruptured the water line, and then the water line um, flooded the basement. And the, there were there were a lot of people in that basement, so it was um, it was really horrible. And that happened a lot in um, in England and France, and it it happened quite frequently. After a short break, I'll be back with author Lois Buchter. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Lois Buchter wrote a book about her cousin, who was an encryptionist with top security clearance during World War II. And her boyfriend named Paul, and he comes up later in this story as well. And Mark, um, Gersha realizes that what they are transcribing are telling the real story of what's going on. Yes, Yes. And she has moved, um, she has advanced um, into the transcription services to um, uh, higher and higher levels of security. And eventually, um, <laughs> eventually she actually works on the Enigma machine. Um, and so I, let me read you a little bit of that. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Most of these messages come directly from headquarters. We are told they are top secret and talking about the messages to anyone other than the captain could be cause for removal or something worse. I keep thinking to myself, does this message kill someone? There are two large stamps on the box. One says Klappe Schleisen, and the other says Enigma. The captain in charge has cold eyes. I bet he could spit nails into the wall. He makes my skin crawl. My nerves are already frazzled. These are the words of Lois, the author's cousin, Gertie, who is a transcriptionist, and she knows what's really going on in the war because she has top-secret clearance. Now, I mentioned that her friend Marta had a friend, Paul, and we, it's, it's really a delightful part of the book, her story, when she meets this champion football player from yes. Poland. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and and uh, Gertie is, never had a boyfriend, and um, so she, um, while she's in Boblikin, um, she meets a young enlisted man who is from Poland. Um, he is from the part of Poland that used to be German, so he really considers himself more German than Polish. And um, he is there for training, and um, he was part of the infantry, and he was sent to work on um, some of the air uh, flight lines to for security. But Siggy um, just lights up, and it's her first love. They fall in love. And um, they start a garden together uh, there on um, outside the complex um, in order to improve the diet because it's it's cabbage soup and cabbage soup and cabbage soup uh, for for um, most of their their meals there and um, yeah um, they both fall head over heels for each other and she calls his name is Sigmund but she calls him Siggy. Well, now meanwhile she's keeping this diary. And yeah. even that is dangerous for her. Yes. There's and she doesn't have many places to hide it. And so um, only uh, two of the girls that are in her little workspace, uh, sleeping quarters, know that, about the diary. And um, eventually Gertie actually goes home. So she leaves one of the diaries um, at home and gets another um, because she has filled it up. But yes, keeping the diary is, is, is forbidden. Um, they also were, were not allowed to read uh, paraphernalia or books unless they were sanctioned in something about the fatherland. So, um, yeah, wasn't. And uh, she also tells what happens to a girl who had a diary that accidentally let it drop out of her bag. Yes. Yeah. And it's just horrid, horrid conditions. Um, you know, it's it's not you have to tote the line. You can't step off the line. You have to keep looking ahead. And um Eventually, Gertie gets sent actually to Berlin, and um, she has some very eye-awakening um, journey. I asked Gertie, uh, just in conversation in the kitchen, I said, did you know about the camps? And she looked at me, she turned and looked at me quickly, and she said, you know, she said, you know what, Lois? War is awful. It's awful on both sides, but it's really awful. She said, yes, I I found out about the camps because I was on a train and we stopped at a camp and let an officer off. And she said, I smelled the camp. And she said, I was not only, I was only able to see a brief bit of it, but um, when I opened my mouth to, to show alarm at what the little bit that I saw, she said, um, a colonel was on the, on the train and he, he asked me if I had a problem with anything. And I knew if I said anything, I would have been sent right off the train to join the camp right then. In fact, uh, you tell us that it was a Spanish newspaper that showed photographs of the death camps in Poland. 
Yes, yes. Well, the uh, things are not going well, in spite of what's being told, that things are really going well. And meanwhile, just things like coffee, she talks about, oh, we had some real coffee. And then she describes Hitler at one point, where it says, Hitler, she says, Hitler is a greedy child who doesn't share and only communicates with temper tantrums. He would get along well with Petra, this kid. So, so she's, she's talking about Hitler. And then there is, and we all know about this, I think, for the most part, this attempt on Hitler's life. But maybe we don't know what happened to the guy who was plotting to assassinate Hitler. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, he, they, um, they would hang them. They would, uh, you know, uh, pull them apart. It, the incredible torture to those people, all those people associated with that bombing plot um, against Hitler. Um, and uh, but that by that time, that's in Berlin, and the war is um, halfway through the war, I believe. I can't remember the exact date of that assassination attempt, but how things would have been different had that worked. You know, had that gone through. And then on Hitler's birthday, they flying flags over Berlin. And she says, what a waste of energy. Yeah. And uh, she said, meanwhile, our army is losing on all fronts. Yeah. So, they know. <laughs> they know it's they're losing. Well, we uh, see things getting worse and worse for her. And... Pretty soon, though, eventually, the war is over. Yeah. And I might mention, she says in her book that uh, the plotter, Hitler's plotter, was hung by meat hooks. And then also 20 generals were killed. Yes. At that time, too. So, and their families, yes. And then their families as well. Oh, yeah. So then, as the war comes to an end, they have all these displaced people, and she has... She has uh, families living in her room, her, hers and Rolf's uh, uh, former rooms. They have a family of five moving in. Yes. And then in the garage, uh, what, what was advantageous about a family of three moving into their garage at her parents' house? They had no place to go. People, I mean, the streets, I mean, it was line after line of, of families that would walk through um, their area because... Um, they had no food. They had nothing. Um, so after the war, all the transportation avenues are gone. There's no way to transport food. Um, and Gertie's family had the garden and her mother was a master canner and gardener. And so they had food, but they stretched um, it. The And then there were food stamps that you could get. Um, that would give you, uh, it was by calorie count, and it was a thousand calories a day um, that, that you were allotted. But you can imagine trying to trying to <laughs> live and sustain yourself on a thousand calories a day. Well, they do leave Berlin, but would you, uh, Lois, would you please read how they got out of Berlin? This is uh, getting close to the end of chapter 11 in your book. Yes, yes. And, and their biggest, Gertie's biggest fear um, when the war ended was that she was going to fall into Russian hands because she was part of a complex of girls. Um, the matron would tell them to submit to uh, the Russians um, and mass rapings. And uh, it was her biggest fear that she would be captured by the Russians. So, In fact, at one point she writes, let the Americans get here first. Yes, yes. Yeah, she uh, very much wants them to be there first. So, um, yes, as, Rush, as, as Berlin fell, she said, someone ran into our room to tell us the Russians are only three kilometers away. We grabbed our bags and ran downstairs. It was just getting dark when we found Paul. Now is our time. He tells us we have transportation on a truck leading to the north, but we must hurry. We keep to the shadows along the way. I overhear a German officer talking about a group of girls he's going to give to service Russians. My blood turns to ice. I know this officer. We used to call him the watchdog. Carefully, we made our way. I could see Russian troops on our street. They have captured some German soldiers. We heard them say, Germansky kaput. My body and mind freeze when I hear Russian spoken. Paul pulls me along and whispers into my ear, stay focused and very quiet. 
We took off our shoes so we made no sound. I don't care if my feet get cut, just keep moving. My heart is pounding so lonely, so loudly. And so basically they run to the American sector um, and turn themselves in and they just made it to the American sector. I might remind people too that the person helping them out is Marta's boyfriend, the, her friend that died. And this was Paul who helped them get out of Berlin. Yes. Yes. He was a photographer and um, had had um, some clearance and he had papers that would would um, allow them passage to areas they weren't allowed. And so he, Paul was instrumental in, in actually saving her and getting giving her the documents. Well, we also mentioned that Gerda uh, fell in love with this Polish guy from Poland, Siggy. Siggy got captured by the armed forces, but he escaped and he walked home to Poland. Yeah. But then Gerda gets this letter from Siggy. And what does he say in this letter? Does he say, oh, Gerda, let's get married now that the war is over? No, no. no. Um, so she only got a few letters from Siggy during the whole time in the war. So during a four-year period, I think she got four letters. Um, and three were in one year, <laughs> one at the very end of the war. He tells her he has nothing because when he, when Siggy arrived back in Poland, um, his family had a very large farm, very productive farm and house, and the Russians had taken it. Um, it was no longer their farm. Um, and Siggy actually lived in the woods. Um, so he, he was afraid that the Germans were looking for him when he escaped from the prison. So he only traveled at night uh, walking all the way back to Poland. And um, it was very difficult. So he tells her to get on with her life. He has truly nothing to offer her. So it's really out of love for her that he calls it off because he says, I have nothing to offer you. I have no future. So we feel sad for her. But then along comes Hugo. Yes, yes. And she ends up marrying. At, at this point now, this is uh, further along, she ends up marrying Hugo. Yeah. And then uh, they have a wonderful time traveling. Then in part two of the book, and this is told in the third person. Yes. Yes. I bring the, I bring the readers to 1992. And that's the point where I actually met Gertie. And in 1992, um, she, she was such a kind woman. She would get, do anything for you. And so she had um, pen pals all over the world. And there was a one woman who was actually from Poland, who was a physician in Poland. And Gertie offered up um, lodging in her home um, for a summer. And this woman worked at the nearby clinic as a nurse. And she made more in that summer working in a clinic in Germany than she did for a whole year working in Poland as a physician. And um, Gertie just happened to mention in one time during dinner that she had her, her first love lived was from Poland. And she mentioned the town where he was from, which was not too far from where uh, this woman Danuta was from. And as a thank you, when Danuta gets back to Poland, she hunts him down and she finds him. Well, did we mention that Hugo died? Yes, Hugo died uh, just shortly after the Berlin Wall, wall fell, um, and so they never had any children, and uh, she'd always, that was her dream to be a mother, and um, sadly, she never, she never did, but she had friends that were very close to friends, children, and relatives, distant relatives. So meanwhile, Danuta goes back to Poland and does a little research, and what does her research turn up? She actually finds him. She finds uh, Siggy living in an apartment complex, a small studio complex uh, with his son. And she knocks on the door. And um, when she confirms that it's him, he doesn't know Gertie because she uses um, her married name. And when she mentions Gertie and the town she's from, and then she remembers her maiden name, um, he just he just starts crying because um, he is also a widow at that time, and he had been a widow for ten years, um, and um, and then um, he asked permission to write her, and she gives the permission, and then they meet after forty six years in Germany, and it's 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 just 
makes me tear up every time I think about it because she would tear up whenever she would talk about that um, meeting him again. Well, it sounds like a fairy tale, Lois. After all she's been through, here's this fairy tale ending to her story. Yeah, I know, and I wanted people to to know what happened afterwards, what happened after the war, and what her life journey was, and how had she, things changed or not um, in Germany, and because I, I thought that was important to know. Yeah, and she has had this life of uh, drama, and she finds again this person that she really loved, and they got married. <laughs> yes, they, they got married. She had a lot of difficulty getting visas um, in order to, uh, a lot of paperwork going back and forth. Uh, but they they got married and they actually came to my house when I lived in New Hampshire uh, for, on their honeymoon. And when I met Siggy, he was just um, such a European gentleman. He kissed my hand. You know, he bowed and kissed my hand when he met me and tears streaming down his face. He never dreamed he would be on an airplane, never dreamed he would see the United States. He spoke no English whatsoever. And I had very limited German. Um, and on the ride from Boston Airport to my home, uh, which was about two and a half hours, he was he'd never slept. She was sound asleep in the car. He, he, he couldn't see anything. It was pitch black because it's out in the out in the woods but he kept saying I'm here I'm here and that's what he kept saying in English um and he said liberty and he um because I I believe in the area in Poland where he's from they still don't have a lot of liberties and it really um heartened me to be thankful for the freedoms that I have that we all have Lois, this book is just, for those of us particularly who like World War II, there's so many things in here that bring this to life that uh, even though we've kind of spoiled, we've told the outcome of some of what happens to some of these characters, I think people will enjoy reading your book. Let me tell people again, the title of your book is Gertie's War, A Journal of Life Inside the Wehrmacht. The author is Lois Buchter. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much, Nancy. listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.